0: That's Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome the Ringers, Michael Bauman, to the program. Michael and I discuss his recent piece on the Cleveland Browns and the burgeoning analytics revolution in football, including the lessons erstwhile baseball executive Paul DePodesta took from the rise of empirics in baseball, how he's adapting a baseball framework to football, and the mistakes Sabre 1.0 made that he's keen to avoid on the gridiron. We then consider how football and hockey executives and writers will grapple with the labor implications of analytics before closing with what Michael is most looking forward to over the final month of the season. And, of course, we have a little Godzilla talk. Why wouldn't we? All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of a too-soon pumpkin drink, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel's prospect coverage, Dan Zimborski's LG for the season series, which kicked off this past week, Ryan Watts' Clubhouse reporting, and Tony Wolf's examination of various hitters. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating Faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Michael Bauman, Ringer Staff Writer, which begins right now. You were watching Bon Appetit, Michael Bauman.
1: Yes. They were telling me not to wash my chicken, which, uh, I, have to I don't wash know. it. Yeah, apparently uh somebody asked about washing chicken, which I don't do, but so I didn't learn anything cuz you interrupted me by calling me as uh, as I was watching.
0: I'm sorry. It's just that we have things to do. I know was, we had an appointment. So. We had an appointment. We had stuff to talk about. We had, you know, we had to occupy this time in August. I find August baseball to be, I mean, this isn't an original thought that it's something of a slog, but it's the time of the season when I find myself most susceptible to, well, like to bon appetit videos, for
1: instance. As opposed to what? I, there's never a time when I don't find myself susceptible to the alluring gaze of YouTube. <laughs>
0: What else, what else are you watching these
1: days, apart oh, from baseball? YouTube, I can, oh, apart from baseball, I'm watching Mindhunter. I oh uh, did not God. sleep this week because I watched—I actually asked you. Yeah. I said, should I watch season two of Mindhunter, or should I watch Silence of the Lambs again? And you said Mindhunter, <laughs> and I did that instead of sleeping from yeah. a Sunday night through uh, yesterday morning.
0: Yeah, I have found that I get in this feedback loop with shows like that. It's true of Silence of the Lambs also, so I don't know that the feedback loop would have been all that different if I had given you different advice. But I am fascinated by serial killers. They scare—Dylan, I'm going to do a swear—they scare the out of me because they, they keep killing women who kind of look like I do. And then I will watch shows about them in an effort to understand them, sort of like sharks, even though I am not likely to be killed by either— and then I go to sleep, and I have really bad dreams, and I wake up, and I'm like, I wonder why that happened. Who could possibly say?
1: Yeah. I know uh, we had some some brisk discussions about the Ted Bundy Netflix. Uh, oh, yeah. John.
0: Yeah. I made the mistake of watching that uh, by myself at night when it was dark out, and my roommate was out of town for the weekend. So there was really no one coming home to give any kind of – Comfort to the, you know, disturbed images that I was I was cooking up, even though Ted Bundy's been dead for I mean our whole lives. He was he died before we were born, right? Both yes. of us. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, I assume so. Well you were born before I was, so Yeah, but
0: I still think that he was dead before either of us were born. Hmm. Anyhow, that's point. I'm not, not gonna the look point. that up. I'm
1: actually trying no. to remember if I actually watched the Zach Efron Ted Bundy movie. Which probably yeah. doesn't say all that many good things about the movie itself. If I may if or may did. not have watched it, and don't remember if I did, yeah. I think I did. So I didn't. I
0: I was put off by the uh, initial advertising of that. Yes, because it just I was like, we don't need to. He. I don't is this a thing in other parts of the country cuz like when you're from the northwest you you have heard about Ted Bundy for a long time you know that he's he was a bad he was a bad bad dude like you just know that that's not a thing we're conflicted about so when the Netflix documentary came out and people were like well Ted Bundy was kind of attractive I'm like what are we doing here
1: <laughs> I I don't know I I think there's always been that fascination with with serial killers. and I mean, this was also like Ted Bundy's thing is that he was – Charming. Yeah, like he was a Republican political operative and like people didn't expect somebody who looked and acted or, you know, looked and sort of came off like him to be capable of turning into a prolific serial killer, which made it shocking and, you know, turned Mm -hmm. him into one of America's weirdest heartthrobs. Ugh, so. Don't like it.
0: Not into it. I don't right. like it either.
1: Yeah. I, but then uh,
0: again, i i watched the I watched the whole thing, and I watched all of season two of Mindhunter in one mm-hmm. weekend. So I don't know. Jokes on me, I guess. That's not why I wanted you to come on the program. And I'm not gonna try to compare serial I, killers to serial cut Matrix. me off right
1: before I was gonna talk about how Jonathan Groff is the only heartthrob. Oh um, yeah, in my life,
0: Broadway star, right? Uh huh. Yeah.
1: yeah, star of stage and screen mm-hmm. and Glee briefly and Glee. He played a bad guy in Glee. Well, sort of, because I don't know if you're paying attention at all in Glee. Ryan Murphy never really realized this, but Rachel Barry is the bad guy in Glee. Oh, yeah. And so, or yeah. uh, either her or Mr. Shu, which is my brother is an educator and maybe the biggest Glee fan I know. And he oh. uh, would talk extensively about how Sue Sylvester is actually a good teacher and Mr. <laughs> Shu is super not. You know he knows about these things certainly more than I do. Yeah.
0: Also a star of the stage, the guy who played Mr. Shoe.
1: Matthew Morrison, star yeah. of music, well, supporting character in Music and Lyrics, and also bad guy on Grey's Anatomy.
0: Oh, see, I, I, as we have talked about uh, at various points, stopped watching that and refused to believe that that show is still on. Uh, but he was, he was in South Pacific. He was in a successful run of South Pacific, which don't think we've probably made the alterations to that show that are necessary for no, it to sort of not. stand stand up in 2019 but yeah anyway what are you gonna do uh,
1: make alterations to south pacific <laughs> i think is uh, the obvious course of action here yeah
0: michael you wrote a thing i guess it technically went up last week right
1: yeah I... this piece I don't know, uh, well i I find myself identifying with that Washington Post story from last week about how baseball players and to a lesser extent baseball writers never know what day of the week it is, yeah, um so I'm proud to be talking to you on this uh this Friday evening <laughs> you You wrote a
0: piece for the ringers n f l preview, which I thought was very good, about the Cleveland Browns embracing we're not calling it the moneyball era in football, obviously. I know that you struggled a, a little bit with a, a concise way to term the analytics revolution in football.
1: I mean, we sort of settled on an, analytics revolution, yeah. uh, just the struggle was we didn't want to use that phrase in the head and the deck. So yeah. that's So we I I found exactly one way I'm comfortable and you know comfortable referring to that.
0: Yeah. And you spoke at length, it seems, with uh, Paul DePodesta, which will be a name that is familiar to listeners of this podcast, even if they are not football fans, as one of the architects of Moneyball, uh, later of the Mets and Dodgers and other various baseball points before he defected and went to football. And we'll link to the piece in the notes for the show so that people can read it at their leisure. And I uh, encourage them to, especially if they're fans of the Cleveland Browns, but even if they're not, but it seemed like a good opportunity to talk about a thing that I've been thinking about a lot in the last six months and that you have, you have heard me squawk about to you, which is how strange it is to watch other sports go through this set of sort of through their own analytics revolutions, sometimes understanding the some of the trials and tribulations that have resulted from that in baseball, and sometimes being seemingly very indifferent to them.
1: Yeah, this is why I like. I, I think when when De Podesta jumped ship and wound up going to the Browns, I was as shocked as anybody. And then it started to make sense because, like you were saying, baseball has you know, we're not done our empirical revolution, but it's been going on for many, many years. And baseball collectively has made many, many mistakes in terms of making assumptions about what you can quantify and what's worth studying and how you might quantify it. And baseball, I think is in a, you know, it's in a pretty decent place right now in terms of actually generating knowledge and Mm -hmm. maybe a less decent place in in terms of learning what to do with that knowledge. And uh, maybe the Broader implications beyond short-term uh, quantifiable goals, but that's not to single out baseball because I believe that American society under late capitalism is is also struggling with uh, with that issue. So you know, art imitates life in this respect. Anyway, <laughs> my supposition has always been, or you know, has has been since I started thinking about this, that. You could transplant somebody like Paul D. Podesta, who, in addition to having a baseball background, has a football background. He was briefly like even a I think a minor league hockey executive mm-hmm. uh, before he started working for the Indians. Somebody who knows enough about football to translate the methodological and sort of you know communication issues. Like figure out, take like all these solutions from baseball and apply them to another sport. So like I've found myself you know, I'm, I'm probably, like, just a one-team NFL fan at, at this point. Like, one of the struggles when I was writing this piece and, like, trying to figure out what I actually wanted to talk about is, like, I don't have a good enough grasp of, of like, advanced football statistics to to really get into the weeds with him about that. Right. Um, but, you know, one sport I follow a little more closely is hockey. And I have been bemused by how... Closely, hockey's analytics revolution has has followed baseball's analytics revolution in terms of what we're discovering or what they're discovering, how they're discovering it, how they're talking about it, how they're applying it. And so, yeah. like, you know, I'm reading and listening to and, you know, I didn't end up actually getting into this in the piece, but, you know, I'm sort of exploring the state of hockey analytics as well when I was, mm-hmm. you know, this was... I was figuring out how to beef up this piece in case I didn't get Dee Podesta on the record. Right. And uh, and which was, you know, which uh, was a definite possibility all the way through. But sort of maybe turning this into like a broader exploration of comparative sports analytics. But I I find myself amused by by how closely that follows, how closely hockey, at least, has followed baseball. And this has been my sort of half-joking contention, that, like, if this baseball thing ever goes south for me, I could just pick up what I know. And I'm not, like, a cutting-edge sabermetrician by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I needed to be dragged kicking and screaming through graduate statistics. Like, I could not go, you know, be the analytics director for an MLB front office. However... Just knowing the mistakes that we made in baseball, right? I could go and, like, spend six months learning about hockey stats and probably...
0: Poured over a
1: bunch of relevant have, like, you know, become Yeah, become, like, the like the Bill James of, of hockey stats or something, you know? Because cause they're following us that closely. It's not, like, this is not about how smart or clever I am. This is no. about, like, I know the future, you know, because right. they are living out our past. So right. that was something that I was interested to talk to. This is a very long answer. You know, I guess we're not actually going to have a conversation. We're just going to talk at each other for four <laughs> minutes at a time. Um, but that's sort of what I find interesting about this whole thing. And I think that that's something that, you know, just talking to De Podesta, he was obviously a little cagey about, like, what specifically they're doing. Right. But I think he is taking a lot of what, like, he learned from from the Mets and the Padres and, and Oakland and stuff that, like... I, I think he knows like what mistakes they made back in 2002 or 2005 or even 2010 and has a pretty good idea t- of how to avoid making those mistakes as those same issues come up in football. And I think that's what he really brings to the table.
0: I was struck by I, – I wonder, you know, there's, there's always two sides of this, right? There's the way that this stuff actually gets implemented in front offices regardless of the sport and the way that it affects how teams draft players, develop players, the on-field strategies that they employ, which I, as you note in the piece, like the potential for that – being a place where NFL teams that are smart and and are open to asking questions might really gain some benefit in a way that is very different than it is in baseball where the on-field strategy is pretty simple in terms of what you're what you're trying to affect right you need a baseline mm-hmm. level of competence but once you put together a reasonable lineup and like can call on the better reliever in the right situation you've gotten most of the way there right but that there is a One of the things that marked some aspects of early analytics in baseball, and I don't say this to call out any individual person or specific person, but like, you know, it was a little smarmy. We were yeah. at times a little smarmy. I would say we were,
1: arrogant is the word I would choose. I yeah, don't.
0: we were at times very arrogant, right? Because we were – and it's an understandable arrogance. You're discovering and finally quantifying and putting in in a light that is reasonably objective this stuff that you always sort of suspected might be true, and now you have the math to prove it, and that's very exciting. And when people are excited and right, they can get arrogant which is a generous way of interpreting a large swath of the early days of analytics, and we're just going to go with it so that no one feels bad when they listen to the podcast. But I was struck by the opportunity that he has in the football context of potentially sidestepping some of that arrogance, which I would imagine, would result in better analysis because you are not so confident in your conclusions. Like you quote him in here saying, we're always super cautious about what we don't know, and that's an area where we lean really, really heavily on people with vast experience in the space, our scouts, our coaches, our players. They provide so much context and so much richness to any other information we might have. And so it seems like sports that are just now even though some of them, like hockey, might be making some of the same mistakes that early baseball analysts did, it seems like they have an opportunity to do this so much better than we did because yes. they know to not fly so close to the sun, maybe.
1: Yeah, and I think baseball having, like the struggle for acceptance was so much longer and protracted. You know, right. maybe some of that arrogance, like it attracted, like the, the necessary iconocla- is it iconoclasm, right. Is that the the verb?
0: Icon- mm, yeah.
1: Iconoclasty, whatever. Uh, you know, <laughs> like you know that. what I mean. The <laughs> I uh, mean. contrarianism of, of yes, early saber rhetoricians. I think, like, the idea that you're coming in as an outside voice, and, and like that would, and using unusual methods or unaccepted methods, like that, that attracts a certain personality, right. and to be able to have that confidence to speak up in in the face of tradition and. and Uh, what we thought at the time was evidence, or we, like all these people are old enough to be my dad, like I'm talking about, you know, we 30 years ago, talking about his evidence, like I think that requires a certain personality type and maybe, I mean, this might, I hesitate to say this a little bit, but like people, you know, Bill James is not a trained statistician, you know, and a lot of the people who who were making these early gains are sort of self-taught, autodidactic, and I think there's as somebody who is trained briefly and badly as a social scientist, like I understand that there is like a, the default position ought to be uncertainty. And you can't right. really do that if you're trying to do sports takes essentially. Right. And so I probably feel more judgment in my soul towards the forerunners of Sabermetrics than I, that I really should. And I should, I should be more sympathetic, but yeah, acknowledging uncertainty, acknowledging that's the biggest thing. And I think this is actually the, the biggest way that, like the early, you know, the first couple of generations of sabermetricians, lack of formal training really came back to bite the entire movement. Is recognizing, well, you know, I say that, and like quantitative social scientists can be just as oh, about this. Oh yeah. So, so I mean, you know this as well as I do. Oh yeah. So, but the idea that like if you can't quantify it, it's not worth measuring. And now we're trying to understand. And that was an attitude that persisted, I think, you know, I would say even into the 2010s. And then we started to realize that, and then as the data got better, like that didn't, that pendulum didn't swing back, I think, until the data got better and we started to be able to measure things that we previously couldn't realize Oh, wait, like the conventional wisdom became conventional wisdom for a reason. Right. And maybe not – maybe they weren't right about everything. Maybe they overstated certain small intangible things, they being the the old pre-sabermetric baseball folks. But, like, they understood the game, I think, a lot better than some of our forerunners gave them credit for. And so – deepetta like just talking to him and talking about the way he discussed uncertainty this is the big thing this is actually if if you take take away anything from this story this is i you know this is what i took from the interview this is something that i really hammered home like tried to really get in his head about is the importance of communication even right. more so in like you know in baseball there's very little a manager can do and and so it's you know it the, there's not as much plan to implement, but it's so important in football. If you're building a team to have a coach who's comfortable implementing right. that team and you know that team, that team's game plan, the coach also comes up with so much more of the game plan because there's so much tactical variation. It's probably ten times more important for the entire organization top to bottom to be on the same page. And that's something that I think baseball is only recently getting good at. And that's something the Browns are at least trying to get good at, or Dodessa at least, is trying to get good at from the start. And that means getting buy-in from everybody and getting information from everybody. And I think right. that, you know, at least from what he told me and you know, I know very little beyond what he told me about how it actually works in Cleveland. This is something they're making a conscious effort to do. And I think that's the smartest thing. Like even more than getting the empirics right or the information right, making sure that everybody is like pulling on the same direction is yeah. uh, is huge. And so that's something and like just talking to him I've reread large parts of Moneyball in preparation for this article. I was like, I cannot believe this is the same guy. Yeah. That, you know, you think about how probably Billy Bean, more than him, like, interacted with Art Howe, interacted with Grady Fuson. And, you know, maybe some of those confrontations were were overblown for purposes of, you know, maybe not everything. I'm not saying, like, not everything in Moneyball, like, actually happened or anything. But, you know, maybe they were perceived to be worse than they were. But they were not all pulling in the same direction uh, the way every major league every smart major league baseball team ought to be right now and so that's the the big takeaway i think even more than the you know, the information the analytics and like you know everybody knows how to do that but that's really and i don't know like you look at at some of the people who have gone from fan graphs to to work in major league front office this is a lot of what some of them are doing is is right. streamlining that communication so yeah. that is the frontier for me yeah
0: I mean, you think about, and I don't say this to like puff up former colleagues of mine, although it it might sound that way. I mean, I remember when, you know, when Dave got hired, when Jeff got hired, they are not, you know, trained modelers, right? They don't code. That's not their skill set. But they they ask interesting questions and are receptive to data looking a lot of different ways, right? And not assuming that it has to necessarily be a number or something that TrackMan can measure and so i think you're right that like there is a trying to whether we want to view it as a course correction on baseball's part or just an enhancement of that particular skill set to say like the the way that we talk about this stuff not only in how we ask the questions but then how we spit out the answers that we've arrived at to other people in the organization Mm -hmm. is going to make a big difference in how that stuff gets implemented Reading this, I was like, well, I really wish that like David Hesta was involved with the Seahawks, because like the Seahawks are not this. Like when Moneyball for football gets written, they're gonna dunk on the Seahawks, like a lot, because they have a a really good passing quarterback and they pass less than any other team on first and second down in the NFL, and that's like not understanding what the skill set of your players suggests that you should do from a strategy perspective and what the numbers would tell you is the most efficient way to score touchdowns. Right. Mm -hmm. So then you end up with Russell Wilson in third and long, and then they get nervous. He's going to throw an interception. Anyway, we don't have to talk about the Seahawks, but I was thinking about this the whole time. It's like, that isn't a failure of communication because P Carroll and Brian Schottenheimer are very much on the same page, but it is, you're going to rapidly see teams that are not thinking this way, Getting lapped in the way that teams early on in analytics kind of got lapped for a while Mm -hmm. because they didn't, the, the gap between what a savvy team is doing and what a traditional team is doing is really wide. And there is so much low hanging fruit that you can really juice the performance of your team just by doing some stuff smarter than the people who are refusing to think about those questions at all.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that is one of the uh, the lessons that you need to take from the the Seahawks. Certainly, at the end of Super Bowl forty nine, is that <sighs> they need to pass the ball more. Um, wow!
0: I just the, like yeah. I didn't even mean to tee you up for that. And I assumed as my friend you would not make me relive that moment oh, of Oh, I was just life. thinking about
1: how the Eagles actually do seem to be pretty well integrated top to bottom. Oh my um, god. From a, you know, from an analytics standpoint getting You're a monster. in and so. Yeah, you know, I'm just saying. God. <laughs> yeah. So to your point there's there's some low hanging fruit, but yeah, I, I think the lag time is gonna be a lot less in, in other sports because first of all there's proof of concept in baseball. Right. Like we know that doing things other than like the good old boys way can actually have merit and we know the value of empirics and, and all this, you know, new technology and new new analytical approaches. And there's also that wealth of existing information to to draw on. So like the the first mover advantage just disappears like I don't know like I, I think we're we're past that point in certainly football and basketball hockey I don't know if there's like a, a front office that's really like everybody's got the anal- they're like analytics people pretty much um, mm-hmm. but not everybody is uh, I don't know if there's anybody that's like really integrated top to bottom and so like right now you know, this is the the hot young GM in in hockey right now is a guy named Kyle Dubas in, in Toronto, and he's built a really talented team using principles that you would recognize from, you know, from the Astros, from the Indians, from the Sixers, from you know, from maybe even the Cleveland. Well, you know, the he started before the Cleveland before the Browns, but like you would yeah. recognize him in an MLB front office, you know, right? But he's got a very accomplished, very old school coach, and they are at or sorry. Um, I forgot you couldn't swear on this spot.
0: It's okay. Dylan will edit it out. Dylan, uh, he did a swear.
1: I did a... Well, I did like... There was the, one
0: earlier, too. Get them all.
1: <laughs> I did like the first uh, three letters of a swear and then mm-hmm. called myself. Anyway, Kyle Dubas is at war with his old old head coach. And mm-hmm. uh, that kind of joined up thinking is going to be the next frontier in in hockey. So, you know, this being a baseball podcast to where I'm talking about my football article, I do seem to, to be talking about hockey a lot, but... This is, you know, this, this is all of a piece. And this was the other thing that I I talked to him, talked to Dee Podesta about is like, I just keep coming back to like my American history classes about the, in high school, about like the industrial revolution. And Mm -hmm. so major like quantum leaps in technology don't come from inside the industry. They come from somebody in a related industry, like somebody who runs like a print shop you know, designs a screw or a gear that works better for mm-hmm. a mill and all of a sudden, you know, you've got an exponential increase in, in productivity. And that's sort of what's going on here. And that's the usefulness for other sports looking to baseball for inspiration.
0: Well and it's interesting because, you know, like like football outsiders has been kicking around for a long time. You know, there are definitely football writers who approach their analysis of of the NFL from an analytics bent. I mean, I think Bill Barnwell, our buddy Bill, falls into that category, right? So it's not as if this is a new concept, but it does seem to have accelerated really rapidly in terms of the place that It seems to be occupying in football media. Now, some of that might be, again, that I am a Seahawks fan, and so I follow Seahawks people, and those people are very dismayed with the approach of the Seahawks and thus are turning to analytics as a way of sort of understanding and explaining their dismay. Uh,
1: Yeah, this might, this actually might be the just the self selection of the Seahawks people I I interact with, but it seems like Seahawks. Or like the the Seahawks media culture is like a little savvier than most. I mean, this might just be yeah. a, uh Well, I you know this might just be a um a side effect of like knowing you and Mina Kimes and working with Danny sure. Kelly, you know, and so yeah. maybe I'm just getting the cream of the crop. But yeah, it just seems like there's a lot more acceptance of of stats and well, and the other thing is like you look at at what Bill uh when he was really making this. You know, and he wasn't the first by any means, but like right. he was one of the first people who I encountered who analyzed football in this analytical way. Like a lot of the stuff that that he started out doing was a lot it was very reactive, like mm-hmm. learning how to identify value and learning how to I- identify opportunities to create more. So like the go for it more on fourth down, or you right. don't have to establish the run, or like learning when to blitz and when not to. Like those those things are very much saber one point principles. The, right, the it's the uh, not bunting of football. The not bunting. The yeah, learning to identify on base percentages as a right. way to. And so the next thing to do is how to figure out how to build good players or how to implement you know make the sort of scouting development tactical adjustments that we've made in other sports. You know what is the the football equivalent. Of, I mean, it's not even the the football equivalent of all three pointers and and free throws. It's like identifying spin rate or whatever right. that is.
0: Right. Well, and I think that that's probably a good way to transition into the other thing that I often think about and thought about when I was reading your piece, because I know that this is you know subject near and dear to your heart, although not quite within the confines and bounds of this piece, which is. Every time we talk about how to optimize strategy and roster construction in a sport, it has labor implications. Mm -hmm. And football players are in, in a lot of ways, a much tougher spot than major leaguers because while they are a unionized workforce, their careers are... Shorter once they reach the pros. I think that's still true, right? Yes, that on that's average, absolutely
1: true. I, 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 don't know, I guess they're unionized. I just keep coming back to like when Le'Veon Bell was holding out, right, last year. One of one of his teammates who criticized him for not showing up was his team's union representative. Oh, jeez, which I is don't like, think I knew that. Yeah. That's nuts. <laughs> I wound up writing about this last year. That was the only reason, and like I went through the roof when I read that quote. So right. this so, I mean this is just the kind of culture there is in right. addition of football being just an unfathomably physically deleterious sport. Right.
0: So they are they have shorter careers in large part because the sport is more physically damaging and demanding which isn't to knock baseball players but they're not basically getting into a car accident every time they take the field, right? And their contracts are for the most part not guaranteed and so they find themselves often in very precarious situations especially if they suffer injuries and one of the common refrains that is coming out of the football analytics revolution is that running backs are by and large interchangeable that they are that as a position it is not a place that you want to spend a tremendous amount of draft capital in a way that is very different from what we have kind of understood historically right like people know you you shouldn't take like a kicker in the first round but there's a long history of very good NFL running backs who are first-round picks, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, and you know, he might not have gone into this when, when you were chatting with him, but just in terms of your own understanding, is the labor side of it something that NFL front offices are thinking about at all? Or are they just content to have a way to optimize their rosters that means they can pay people less?
1: I mean, I'm sure that... <laughs> We we did not talk about this. Yeah. I purposely steered clear of that because you know, anybody who is at all familiar with my work uh, knows sure. that this is something that I think about a lot. And yeah. if this was going to end up being like the route that I – like this is absolutely something that we should think about and write about. But like if I was going to do that with this article, yeah, I was that, never uh, going to finish. Yeah, so like I just sure. had to sort of narrow the scope, which you know I don't like doing, but it was unfortunately expedient in this case. So, I mean, the way I framed Moneyball years ago, I think might this might have been like all the way back in the in the Grantland days, was like a book about how to how to pay people less than their worth, or identify people you can pay less than than their their worth, and yeah. so. This is absolutely something I'm thinking about. It Like, to your your running back point, I think the pendulum's already started to swing the other way on that. Like, we've seen Saquon Barkley and Todd Gurley and Ezekiel Elliott all get picked, I think, in the top 10 of the draft. Leonard Fournette right. and a couple others.
0: Seahawks are never so happy as when they're taking a running back in the first round.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I think – so what I think they're, they're realizing is, like, running backs are sort of – and maybe – This is not the correct analogy, and I'm going to look silly for uh, for saying this. But like I said, I'm not a football guy. Maybe like on our podcast, actually this week we talked about pitcher usage. uh, Zach Mm -hmm. Graham and I did, and like how there will always be, or probably always be, the 200 inning starters. Like there will always be like a Clayton Kershaw and a Max Scherzer and a Justin Verlander who can pitch as well as anybody in the league at a high volume, and those guys are going to continue to be special. I think like the what they've realized is it's worth shelling out. For those very top end running backs, and at least in terms of draft capital, and uh, you know this, for, there's not that big a difference between second tier and like fourth tier. You know what you get sure. from the twentieth overall pick versus a fifth rounder, or just somebody who can carry the ball four yards at a time. So if you don't have Saquon Barkley, then whatever you can, then you can find somebody, right? And that's not a place to to invest unless you're getting the absolute cream of the crop, but. So, labor is always sort of reacting to these to these changing priorities, and in that that respect they're very much like the the drug testing authorities like mm-hmm. you can't design a test to anticipate uh, yeah the to anticipate like until yeah. you, until you know what you're looking for so right. And maybe that's a failure of imagination on, on organized labor's part, I, certainly not in football, not not only in football, but in sports and I think in society at large. Like sure. There's a, a failure of imagination there to, to really be more cynical and try to anticipate. But there's only so much you can do. And also, right. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and sorry, Dylan, nobody gives a shit about the players. And this is just right. a – particularly in football. And right. so these they vote Andrew Luck. <laughs> yeah, these are disposable bodies. And right. particularly you look at at uh the race and class of most of the the football players, I think that's probably worse than uh in football than in any other sport. And you sure. factor in like the pseudo-military gladiator culture. It's the it's such a macho retrograde culture. It, yeah. And so you know, I and I think a lot of the players are so and I certainly don't mean this to say they're naive or anything, but, like, they want to they wanna embody – I think a lot of them want to embody, like, something that, that we hold up as valuable in, sure. both within the sport and in society at large. Sure. And, you know –
0: It's a way to have long this. careers and get endorsement deals and yeah. be one of the guys on the Sunday Night Football intro and Carrie Underwood's running around for some reason that we still don't understand.
1: Mm-hmm. It's – I mean, well – we we complained about Carrie Underwood and then she was gone and we missed her so she's coming back so anyway this is a long winded way of saying there's just not the the public will to yeah. for for players to fight back and I think that's unfortunate I think our our sport and our, our sport you know the sport all sports in society are poorer you know poorer as a result because I think the you know, maybe I'm imputing more sinister and cynical uh, motives to people at the very top of the food chain that maybe exist but like for the people on one side it's just about making money at any cost and like, right. the pe- you know for football players for writers even like right you know we want to work and right. you know we want to do we want to contribute we want to make a you know make a difference be a positive good help you know help out our our friends and our team and uh and you know i think that that natural inclination towards helpfulness or like the desire for productivity is something that really gets taken advantage of which has nothing to do with the co- with the question you asked <laughs> 7 minutes ago
0: <laughs> i don't think that assuming a cynical a, m- and money motivated approach is at all out of line when it comes to the nfl i don't think you're going to get many detractors from that perspective I think that's pretty straightforward. So I guess it then falls, in a way that I hope I hope football writers are sort of savvy to, articulating those sets of power dynamics is going to be important for football analysis as it goes forward. Then right in a way that it was and is still important within baseball, and maybe they'll get on the they'll get on the train a little earlier than we did. Yeah,
1: because we I mean and I say this like a lot of people who were really coming out and like and I'm. As guilty of this as anybody i think the only reason there's not more evidence of my bad you know uh short-sighted uh saber 1.0 takes is that i just wasn't old enough to be in the industry to to divulge them <laughs> but a lot of us have sort of figured out like oh if you really do this hyper rational cost cutting you know talk about bad contracts and in, in quotes like That has real world implications, not just within the sport, but within society at large. And yeah, you know, to I I think a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people have really responded to this well. And those, you know, and this is the other thing is like, we have advanced the empirical study of the sport to a point where okay, now we can talk about what we want to do with it, and that's the what I was talking about earlier with in the specific Cleveland Browns case, how do you communicate to that, to the coaches, to the players? And, you know, how do you get everybody on the same page? And from outside the game, we who cover it say, okay, what does that mean from an ethical perspective? You know, and what does that mean for the lives of, of players, of, of fans of even the people who work within these front offices. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, this is something that I actually am kind of encouraged by the way that, uh, that sports journalism has gone over the past few years in one respect is that there's been less redundancy of effort into like writing game stories. And this is something I think the athletic does really well is they empower their writers to go out and tell human interest stories. And that's, that I think is really interesting to fans, like to, you know, get to know these players as people. And I think the more you do that, the more you realize, you know, maybe you don't say, okay, you know, you get to a point where you're like, You know, I want Adam Jones to land with a team because he seems like a good guy, even though even when he was good, he was overrated as a player. But like, I want to see him see him succeed because, you know, I know X, Y and Z about him. Even if it doesn't extend to that point, I think the more we know about players, the more fans will view them as human beings as opposed to just characters. Widgets. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think it's. I might be overestimating the degree to which this is important, so you can tell me that I'm full of shit. Dylan, you're gonna have to do so many swear edits. We haven't had many lately, so we—I guess I've been banking them, and now he just is gonna have to deal with these. I think it's
1: just talk- I, I'm, so I'm I'm talking. I'm—I'm allowed you. to curse on the Ring Around <laughs> the show, and I just don't think about it, and so that's okay.
0: It's okay. So, I'm profaning
1: your church. Ugh,
0: it's fine. I. This might be too much of a meg thought, but I—I I feel like that. Sort of humanizing work is particularly important in football because you see less of their faces.
1: Yes. Oh yeah. I don't, right? think, like, that's, I don't think that's weird at all. I think you know.
0: Yeah. That's something I, like,
1: that I've heard articulated about basketball too.
0: Right. Like, and basketball has the has the best position on this stuff because whenever you whenever you zoom in on someone being mad you get them full in the face you get them you get the full face and in baseball you mostly do although not with catchers unless they're batting obviously and even i think the hats confuse people because then when they see them without their hats they don't recognize them because you realize that like chris bryant has like five more inches of forehead so he looks like a different guy yeah i was jarring when i realized that right yeah you're like wow chris It's very Jimmy Neutron of you. So (laughs) so I think in football it's maybe especially important because you just you see a lot less of their faces, although I suppose slightly more lately since the NFL has banned the the dark visors, right? So you don't have you can't be as obscured as you once were, but it's like you need to you need to make them literal people instead of just creative players because Mm -hmm. you don't see their face.
1: Yeah, I mean to a certain extent, like you think about Cletus, the Fox robot, like how different yeah. is Cletus to the way we see like an NFL linebacker.
0: I'm convinced that it is just JJ Watt. Cletus is JJ Cletus Watt. Is JJ? I, yeah, I think they're just the same guy. I don't think have we ever seen them together.
1: I don't know. Well I don't know. The Texans are usually on CBS. So. <laughs> The mystery deepens. Cletus doesn't get hurt as much as J.J. Watt, I can tell you that That's way.
0: true. J.J. Watt had very nice things to say about Andrew Luck when he announced his retirement. Made me appreciate J.J. Watt. But if anyone knows how it feels to be hurt and dinged up and yeah, have to get in the way. yes, him
1: more than anything, anybody else. Yeah.
0: Michael, I feel like I should let you fire off some more baseball-specific takes since I've made you talk about football and hockey so much on this baseball podcast. And so I will ask you a question that I didn't prepare you for, and then okay. if you are like, hey, that's a really annoying question, we'll just edit it out. Good. It'll be like it never magic happened. magic
1: pre-recorded radio.
0: Yeah, there you go. So my question for you is, as we are recording this, I will identify the actual date, but in order to do that, I'm having to look at my calendar. It's it
1: August is 28th.
0: August 28th. That is Wednesday. And we are quickly moving into September, and we do have several division races that are still tight. Uh, We're going to get September call-ups in a second. And I'm curious what you, Michael Bauman, are looking forward to and looking for the most keenly in the final month of the regular season. What's the thing you're excited about, and what's the thing that is uh, maybe going to be the most sort of interesting to you from an analysis perspective? And you you can take a beat, and Dylan will edit that out too.
1: Um, I find myself experiencing a lot of ennui this season. Like, even as we've got as chaotic a National League pennant race as I was hoping for, it's just been like there's one and a half good teams in the National League, and everybody else is just, everybody else sucks. Yeah. And I It does take
0: the fun out of the Central, doesn't it? Those teams aren't very good. the
1: wild card, like, there's no, like, we've looked at, at, uh, the Phillies had that winning streak, you know, we were all uh, really enthralled with the... With what the Mets were doing for those couple weeks right after the trade deadline. And like Mm -hmm. there's no way either of these teams should be within ten games of a playoff spot the way they played all year. And so what I'm looking forward to is being rid of them. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to the Nash or sorry, the American League wildcard race. Because I think Mm -hmm. there's there are three teams that are and we talked about this on the pod a couple weeks ago, since I'm on your pod. I'm going to plug my own. Yeah, uh, the please. the Indians, the A's and the Rays are all in a very close dogfight and they've been, uh, and you can sort of toss the twins into that race too, because they're still within striking distance in the, in the AL central. And so all those teams have been constructed in really fascinating ways. And so like, I'm, there's going to be at some point in the future, a big Rays feature for me coming out. And like, I went down to the trot for about a week and like got to see that team up close. And it's, You know, it's easy to be cynical about them, I think, but it's Mm -hmm. that's a fun team. And so once and if and when they get like Blake Snell and Tyler and Yanni Trinos back, they're going to become even more so. And so like these are just teams that I have a lot of fun watching and they're sort of creative and interesting from a tactical perspective in a way that. Most major league baseball teams are not like they, they feels like they have a lot of finesse as opposed to a team like the Yankees or even the Astros in this day and age, yeah, and so to say nothing of like they 've got individual players I find interesting, and you know yeah. I wrote about Shane Bieber that came out today, and like I had not realized until like I really got to study him up close for this story that like how fun it is to watch him pitch when he 's really on it, and so it, yeah. just every team. It's just chock full of players like that. And so, you know, obviously I got to keep at least a surface interest in the entire league just for professional reasons. As annoying as that is, as much time as the National League <laughs> is, is wasted of mine this season. uh, it, This is one, one race, I think, that, that I find extremely compelling. Cool. So that is one thing I'm looking forward to. I just kind of want the playoffs to come because there's yeah. been so much... You know, as, as much as chaotic as as a lot of the season has been, like it feels like certain parts of it were preordained. Like it's it's it sort of feels like no matter what's going to happen, what happens, like one of the Astros, Yankees, or Dodgers is going to win the World Series. And yeah. Like I I want the big robots to fight each other, and they haven't yet. And so yeah. I'm I'm just kind of tapping my toe, waiting for that to happen.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm ready for Godzilla to breathe fire down another giant Mm -hmm. monster's throat as it it was godzilla
1: in this metaphor it's
0: probably the dodgers i feel like of all the okay so i don't know what what are the the bird monsters
1: is that mothra
0: mothra that strikes me as an astros thing for some reason i don't know why i i need to think more if that's
1: not mothra you can write in and correct us on twitter at meg (laughs) rowler
0: You're so mean something about that feels astrosy to me maybe like dive bombing you from above. I don't know I feel like Godzilla is likely either the the Yankees or the Dodgers something about that feels right to me. I don't
1: know I haven't thought about it that much, but that's my gut instinct oh it's Rodan the Rodan is like I'm on Wikipedia now Rodan oh. is like the uh like a dragonish sort of thing. Oh, well, and what was the, so there was the 2014
0: Godzilla. Yeah, that was the which, last one I
1: saw. That was Muto was the. Like, Muto, that's what
0: I'm thinking of.
1: Yeah, thinking there was of, the, the, the uh, Muto the with like the, the big spider thing. And then was there, there was a female Muto that might have been a bird, right? There, or well, like
0: they that? both could fly.
1: Oh, could they? I thought they there could. was just the, because there was the one that like, that laid the eggs in San Francisco and yeah. Godzilla like. Tore off its jaw and, yeah. and, as you said, breathed fire down its throat. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh <laughs> that's what I remember. I have that a strange and, amount. And Aaron Taylor Johnson skydiving.
0: Yes, the 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 skydrop was fantastic. I have a weird amount of affection for Godzilla generally, and that particular Godzilla. I don't know why. I like I like Godzilla as savior of the city. I just find it compelling as cinema. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm i looking forward to the playoffs also because, like, the thing about it is if we're going to get all of this parity and we're going to mostly get it because a lot of teams in the NL are not very good, we should at least get to watch, as you said, the big monsters fight each other. Mm-hmm. Like, give us, give us that. We need that payoff after watching, I don't know, a lot of really bad Cubs baseball. Not really watching the I, Mets. Yeah.
1: You know, I find myself kind of resenting the Cubs. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I've, like, they promised more than they've been able to deliver. Yeah. And like, you know, I find that, like, slightly offensive in in a way that, that maybe I didn't, like, with even the Red Sox, you know, like. Right, the Red Sox I've I've got some sympathy for because like they won 108 games last year, they won the World Series. Okay, you know you have the hangover season. You move and on. Just, nobody gets too mad.
0: They're just a team that does this. I mean, like I don't think in a way that's like a you know meaningful. It's not significant. It doesn't say something about the Red Sox and their roster construction necessarily. But like they kind of do this. They do that like high and low thing pretty consistently. It is not. It is not inconsistent with my experience of the Red Sox that they do something like this. But the I think you're right. The Cubs kind of had an air about them. And now, what are you, Cubs? You're a 71 team so far. Get out of here.
1: It's just very frustrating. I mean, it's certainly we're not telling them anything they don't know already. Oh. I'm sure nobody is more frustrated by nah. their underwhelming season than the Cubs themselves.
0: Yeah, probably. But, you know, it's our podcast. You're the guest, I'm the host, we get to be a little sassy toward the Cubs if we uh, if we so choose.
1: Mm.
0: So, hey, Michael, we're coming up on an hour, so I'm going to turn you loose. Okay. You obviously co-host the Ringer MLB show, which is great. We will link to this article that you wrote, and we'll throw in the Shane Bieber one for good measure. Is there anything else that you uh, want to plug?
1: No, that here? is... Uh... These are my, my legal professional obligations, is to uh, write about such things as Shane Bieber and uh, and ho- host the Ringer MLB show, which uh, I will say you've been a frequent guest on in the past. I have. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to be welcomed back to Fangraphs Audio for the first time by someone other than Carson Sistuli.
0: Long overdue. Very long overdue. I'm glad mm-hmm. that we had uh, such a compelling excuse to do it, but we'll make sure it's not the last time. Yeah.
1: I can resent you a little less now.
0: Oh, good. Well, and you know, there's no song.
1: No, um, we did write you out of the song. That was definitely <gasps> deliberate. Uh, it's okay, but now retired.
0: we kind of can't. Now it feels kind of weird to play the song. Yeah,
1: we've we've retired the song. It's fine.
0: Um, it had a good run. It was yeah. time. To, it was time for it to be over. Like all, like all one hit wonders, it had run its course.
1: How dare you! Insinuating that I don't have another gimmick baseball song. It's just
0: a challenge to write another one, Michael. Where can people find you on Twitter?
1: At Michael Bauman, uh, if you dare. Okay. It's an experience.
0: Your handle is Michael Bauman? Oh, it is. Didn't it used to be something different?
1: It used to be MJ underscore Bauman. Oh, that's so uh, much better as Michael Bauman. Good job. I, I, well... Thanks are are uh, are deserved by uh, Pat Muldowney, our, our social media man at the at the Ringer, who told me you can't have a, an underscore in your Twitter handle. Are you kidding? So he made that happen.
0: Uh, well, I'm 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 glad that he did, and I appreciate you coming on the show. And we'll uh, have you back real soon.
1: Okay, That's good.